Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm joined by Olivia Lang to talk about writers and drinking on the trip to Echo Spring. Olivia Lang's first book, To the River, was Book of the Year in the Evening Standard, Independent and Financial Times and was shortlisted for the Royal Society of Literature on Darty Prize and the Dolman Travel Book of the Year. Olivia is the former Deputy Books Editor of The Observer and writes for a variety of publications including The Observer, The New Statesman, The Guardian and The Times Literary Supplement. She's a 2011 McDowell Fellow and has received awards from the Arts Council and the Authors Foundation. And her latest book, which we're going to be talking about in this interview, is The Trip to Echo Spring on Writers and Drinking. So, Olivia, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me, first of all. Pleasure. I want you to describe what this book is, because it's sort of a a, a melange of a number of things. It's a travel book, it's literary criticism, it's a, a close look at a number of writers, but how would you describe it? I think it's an investigation, really, into quite a deep level investigation into... Both why writers drink, what effect drinking has had on writers, but also what effect the alcoholism of so many of the 20th century's greatest writers has had on literature, whether that matters, whether that effect can be noticed. It's really a sort of desire to understand alcoholism as a disease through literature and to see the effects that alcoholism has had on literature. Is there a distinction then? I mean, is this a book about writers who drink or alcoholics who happen to write well that's a good question isn't it i suppose that's the question they're absolutely alcoholics they're not people who drink casually and it's a book that's absolutely about alcoholism Mm. rather than sort of a more social kind of drinking and it's really it's really sort of driven by that question of a desire to understand alcoholism by way of what i suppose is they're the most eloquent people who have ever had alcoholism. They're the most eloquent sufferers there have ever been. It's not, I think, that writers are more affected. Perhaps they are, perhaps they aren't. But I don't, I don't think they're particularly more affected than firemen or teachers. Mm-hmm. The reason I wanted to look at them was, of everybody, these are the people who are going to be able to lay down as clearly mm-hmm. as possible, not necessarily as honestly, because often they're not particularly honest about it, but with as much detail as possible. These are, if I wanted to understand the disease, these were the people I wanted to go to. This idea of the sort of romantic idea of the of the alcoholic writer, the writer who drinks. I mean, I guess some of these writers that you talk about really personify that they invented that concept. You know, that it obviously there were writers that drank before a lot of writers that drank before them. But at the same time, some of them, when we get on to talking about about some of the people you chose, they almost invented that idea and I wonder if to what extent they it's sort of self-fulfilling prophecy they sort of perpetuate the idea that you know they they became writers they were drinkers but at the same time there's this image of a writer drinking which means they're going to keep drinking Mm, I think and I mean particularly I think who we're talking about here is Fitzgerald and Hemingway and I Mm. think they invent almost and especially Hemingway a model of American masculinity that is very much about lifestyle so they're sitting at their typewriter, they're writing their words, but at the same time 
they're people who live on a very large scale. They're mm-hmm. people who really eat up the world. And part of that is their ability to drink. Part of the sort of partying side, the pleasure-taking side, which is very important in Prohibition America. You mm-hmm. know, there's this whole sort of puritanical strand. And these are people who are resisting that. So that's that's part of why drinking, I think, becomes so glamorous. And the other thing is that it's so much tied up with masculinity that they're people who, again, especially Hemingway, who... They're doing this sort of sensitive, delicate job, and at the same time, they want to look like a big butch guy. So mm-hmm. there's all the shooting, there's all of the fishing, mm-hmm. there's all of the kind of boxing, punching rivals' noses, and drinking is a part of that. It's like, I can drink you under the table, and I will drink you under the table. I can be the powerful drunk, the powerful drinker, in fact, not the person who gets drunk. And you see a lot of that in Hemingway's rivalry with Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. is that he's always saying, hey, he's a lush. I, on the other hand, check it out, I can drink bottles and bottles and, you know, I'm not falling over. You've mentioned a couple of times there the idea of masculinity and all six of the writers you've chosen to talk about are men. Mm. Now, there are plenty of drunk women writers around at the same time that you could have chosen. Is there there a reason? Is this idea of... Again, I guess there's a, as in so many areas of life, a sort of stupid double standard in that this idea of the romantic drunk writer is a masculine thing and, and mm. women drunks are, are held to, a, I guess, a different, a different a totally standard different to the men. Standard. I finally um, just wrote a piece for The Guardian a couple of weeks ago about alcohol and women writers because it's the question I always get mm-hmm. asked is, is there a difference? And the stories were fascinating. You know, I was looking at people like Patricia Highsmith, mm-hmm. uh, Marguerite Girard, um, Jean Rees and their drinking is so different it's so much more considered shameful they're so much more harshly judged by society mm-hmm. and by their peers whereas Hemingway really people were emulating him copying him I think especially and this is very much a 20th century story I think especially with the women it's a much darker bleaker story mm-hmm. this one turns out pretty dark yeah, bleak for the sure, individuals as we'll get on to it retains this glamour to this day mm-hmm. and I don't think I don't think anyone thinks about sort of Jean Reese getting drunk in her bungalow and stabbing her neighbour with a pair of scissors they're like hey mm-hmm. that's a Vogue shoot in itself I mean it just it isn't is it it seems no but much... I could think of somebody like I mean I guess you know again the late in, in later life Dorothy Parker is the exact example yeah. I was going to come out with who and she's who has a much more to Hemingway, yeah. I think. Yeah. she's the one who sort of managed to make that look good but we're mm. talking about Dorothy Parker at a very particular moment in her absolutely, life absolutely yeah so yeah. again it's sort of when somebody's holding the drink, it looks great, mm-hmm. but later on, really not so much. And we're talking about it, we've got to get in really early on, you know, we're talking about it as a romantic idea. But, I mean, all six of the people you talk about, and we'll, we've named a couple, we'll name the rest in a bit, but it's not glamorous. I mean, I mean, they're having a good time in some respects, some of them. I think there's this glamorous idea, you know, this idea that they're, you know, they're out partying all the time, especially when we look at somebody like Fitzgerald, you know, it's all, it's yeah. all parties, it's all glamour and money. Their lives actually, when you examine them, are, and, you know, I don't want to sound judgmental, but grim and sordid, and none of them seem, they're not nice people, none of them seem like particularly great people to hang around with once the drink has worn off Mm, and I think even actually once a session has got stuck into Mm -hmm. if you have somebody like Fitzgerald sure he's kind of hilarious for a while and then he starts taking your watch and boiling up in some soup and he's taking his pants off and you're like Fitzgerald please stop taking your you know it gets out of control and you see this if you're reading the letters especially between friends his friends will be just saying, Fitz, mm-hmm. you're such a great guy. Stop it. Just stop drinking like that. So I think there is a sense of if the drinking is at a certain moment, it mm-hmm. can make somebody very fun to be around. It can look very glamorous, but it's something that escalates. It's something that gets out of control. And particularly for these people who are alcoholics, mm-hmm. it becomes something very different very fast. Mm-hmm. So very generally, and obviously with the caveat that everybody has their own individual reason, alcoholics drink because they need to drink. Why do writers drink? What is it about drink that is attractive to the writer? Well, the question, I can answer that in terms of, in terms of these people. Perhaps this is true on a wider level, perhaps not. But what I was noticing with them all, and I hadn't decided, in, I hadn't known much about their childhoods in advance, so I hadn't picked them based on these similarities. This is something that sort of emerged through research. But they tended to be shy, 
socially anxious, awkward kids. They had not particularly happy upbringings. They kind of suffered. They were not especially happy. And for almost all of them, there's this pivotal moment where they discover there is this substance, and if you drink it, magically, all of Mm -hmm. that dissolves. And I mean, somebody like Tennessee Williams, who I'm sure we'll talk about more, but would suffer from unbelievable amounts of social anxiety. So when he first found that if he had a cocktail or two, that would go away and Mm -hmm. he could speak to people at ease, that was an extraordinary discovery for him. The link between that and writing is so tricky to get at, but it seemed to me that it was something to do with a desire for escapism. All of them were little boys with a gift for telling stories. You know, they weren't very popular, people didn't Mm. really like them, but sometimes they could just sit down and start telling a story to their classmates and people would get caught up in it. People would just be drawn into this spell and I think that sort of desire to be somewhere else than the unhappy circumstance in which they found themselves lies somewhere behind. I don't want to make Mm -hmm. it too sort of crude an explanation, but it lies somewhere behind both the drinking and the choice of fiction as a career. I'm Jeff Dyer. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. How does that then feed into the writing itself? So, so drinking for social confidence, and, and I guess once these people, some of them have obviously more success than others, mm. but are having more and more success, so therefore are being thrust into the into the public gaze more and more, and no doubt the drink helps with that. Yeah. To what extent does it help with the writing? Again, it's a question that. It's difficult to answer because we don't know how it would have turned out if they weren't drinking. But Possibly better. I mean, what's interesting is people always assume that they're drinking to write, that they get drunk in order to write their pages. And perhaps that's true of somebody like Charles Bukowski. But of all these writers, not at all. They weren't getting drunk at the beginning of a day's session. They were drinking at the end in order sometimes to relieve the pressures. Hemingway in particular will talk mm-hmm. about at the end of the day he wants to change the tune. You know, as at the end of a, any sort of day you think right now I'll have my beer but also the huge pressures in particular of a writer's life I think are that you're in isolation for a long time and then you're subject to unbelievable scrutiny based Mm -hmm. on your work and I think as the fame builds and somebody like both Tennessee Williams and Hemingway in particular found this the scrutiny becomes unbearable the criticism can be incredibly personal and hostile and I think that's where drinking starts to take a role in the working writer's life is it's a way just of losing yourself of hiding Mm -hmm. from that and that I think is a point where it starts becoming very dangerous. The other thing of course with alcoholics is the trail of destruction and Mm. broken relationships and you know damaged friendships that they leave behind them as well so again if we can talk about this romantic idea that the writers that writers we're talking about needed drink not only just to cope but in some ways to propel their work to give them something to write about that's, that's an interesting idea, but is the price of that too high? The price is brutal, I think, and the stories are brutal. So you'll just see so many marriages going south, relationships with children in particular becoming absolutely poisoned, and that's always heartbreaking mm-hmm. to read about. That's, that's often very painful. But when you're weighing it up against, well, is it worth it because it allowed this literature, I think actually that's a false sort of equation because I'm not sure that the drinking facilitated the books perhaps sometimes it gave you know little scenarios that somebody could write down Mm -hmm. and certainly with somebody like Raymond Carver you see Mm -hmm. that he's writing down almost everything that happened so yeah perhaps you'd lose some of those stories but it's a very hard equation I always feel when I'm asked that like it's kind of up to the kids to make (laughs) to make that only they know whether it was worth it or not really at least well Definitely two of the six writers that we're talking about, their life ends in suicide. Yeah. It's debatable the extent to which the other people perhaps, you know, drank themselves yeah. to death. 
I wonder to what extent are we talking here about, you know, obviously alcoholism, but to what example does just, uh, you know, their mental health play into the thing as well? So are we talking about writers that drink because they're writers or writers with mental health issues that drink because they have mental health issues and all and just happen to be writers as well? I mean, why does this, why does it end up leading to these brilliant people taking their lives so often? I think there's some incredible combination of sort of vulnerability and talent and it's really hard to say exactly what causes that or how the different factors play in but all of these people suffered from depression often there's a genetic component Mm -hmm. or at least a nurture component that you can see that there were family members particularly fathers who also suffered from depression so out of the two suicides it's interesting John Berryman and Ernest Hemingway both their fathers killed themselves both Mm -hmm. their fathers suffered from profound depression so these sort of things get handed down there's obviously a lot of stuff about anxiety Mm -hmm. as well but on top of that I think alcoholism creates its own problems so once you're really stuck into that sort of addictive relationship with alcohol you're then almost automatically you're lying you're cheating you're stealing you're breaking promises Mm -hmm. you can't fulfill your contracts your work is suffering so that's sort of creating its own not necessarily mental illness but a state of emotional disarray Mm -hmm. and the whole thing is kind of escalating and escalating which i think is why these stories tend to end up in such dark places Mm -hmm. and the physical effects of this poison you're taking on this poison in huge amounts Mm -hmm. and so really the miracle is that anyone ever gets out of mm-hmm. it rather than that so many end up in death because I think that's kind of the, the trajectory. Well, one of the ways that people often get out of it, which is featured quite heavily throughout the book as well, is, is Alcoholics Anonymous, mm. which a, n- a number of these people benefit from. AA itself is something that's you know, is quite controversial. How did, how did the people we're talking about here benefit from it? I think um, I'll just say something maybe more personal than that, which is that first, which is that um, I had no sort of AA agenda when I started writing the book. I probably would have said exactly what you just Mm -hmm. said. And I went to an AA meeting in New York right at the beginning, and what really struck me and what I hadn't known was the sense of fellowship that once people recover, they stick around, they carry on going to meetings, not just in order to look after their own recovery but to extend the fellowship to other people, Mm -hmm. to help other alcoholics. And at that meeting, there'd be people, they do their AA sobriety birthday, so they'd be talking about, you know, I've been sober for a week now, or Mm -hmm. I've been sober for a month. And there'd be people saying, I've been sober for 22 years. And that just blew my mind, that Mm -hmm. people will come and will sort of want want to share that, want to extend that onward. So that idea of the simplest core of AA, I guess... I found very inspiring and I think that is really what saved both John Cheever and and Raymond Carver was the idea of faith in AA that you can do it, people do it. God only knows how. Nobody I spoke to seemed to know really Mm -hmm. how it works. But there's something about if you stick to it, if you believe in this sort of mysterious process and Mm -hmm. just stop drinking, just stop in any given moment without really particularly thinking about what extends out past Mm -hmm. that, it works and god knows that you know it's, it sounds like a sort of cult but it has saved so many lives so so i came away really very impressed by it the other side then of that is i mean to what extent is the the milieu that these writers are in as i said especially the ones that that got some sort of notoriety some sort of fame to what extent is that are they enabled by that lifestyle i guess what by the lifestyle of drinking yeah i mean i think perhaps this is more of a modern thing, although perhaps somebody like Fitzgerald, to what extent were they almost expected to to live up to that that standard? Like a kind of Amy Winehouse sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've never actually thought that so directly as you've just put it, but I think that there's probably some truth in that, that you start getting caught up in a character and expected to behave in a certain way. And I think when you get descriptions of the sort of later Hemingway as well, you definitely get the feeling of there's a person inside there almost looking out through a Mm -hmm. mask of the myth of Hemingway and perhaps very much sort of caught up in this feeling of this this is how I should be behaving and yeah that's that's interesting and especially because the alcohol is having such strong effects on the brain and the emotions and people become more and more vulnerable I guess it then becomes almost a prop that I just play the character and there's an Mm -hmm. amazing... New Yorker profile with Ernest Hemingway by Lillian Ross. 
it's quite famous and it's it was done sort of well into his late stage mm-hmm. and he's almost like a caricature of himself how he's talking he talks about himself in the third person throughout mm-hmm. and you do get the feeling of somebody who has just really drunk their own Kool-Aid you know mm-hmm. who's just fallen in love with their own myth and yet isn't very happy inside it either so mm-hmm. it's it's really quite disturbing to read I'm thinking also if you took in the book about the uh, the, the YouTube clip of, of Tennessee Williams oh, yeah. which is wonderful I, love that I mean it is great I watched it over and over again once it, once it was mentioned but again he is you know this ultimately drunk man making a fool of himself on stage and yet it's the treated thing, so affectionately the thing I think that's different about that is that there's clearly from David Frost this huge homophobia Mm -hmm. and it's a period where you could expect the audience to also have that homophobia and Tennessee Williams just fronts it out it's Mm -hmm. like well you know you're not going to make me feel ashamed and I think that's what the audience is responding to more than like hey look at this drunk clown is Mm -hmm. I always feel very um strongly about Tennessee Williams because I think despite everything else about him how brave he was about Mm -hmm. his sexuality sort of almost sets him aside from the rest. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about him more, but mm-hmm. I, I think in that moment you really see that he isn't going to be made ashamed. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Olivia Lang, and we're talking about her book, The Trip to Echo Spring, on writers and drinking. Olivia, all the way through this book, as well as talking about the writers, there's another narrative, which is your own story, your own journey, <laughs> both metaphorically and literally. Um, because you take a road trip across America, basically you travel to find some sort of trace of these writers, places they visited, places they lived. But also, this is a story about your own personal journey. So tell us tell us about that, first of all. Yeah, I grew up in an alcoholic family. And I mean, that was really the impetus for writing the book in the first place was when I was, I guess, 17 or so, I read Catherine Hopton Roof by Tennessee Williams. And it was the first time I'd ever encountered alcoholism on the mm-hmm. page. I'd ever encountered really a representation of the kind of life, the kind of family, the kind of home that I'd been inside externally and it really blew my mind mm-hmm. to sort of to find that so I was really interested from then on in what do writers have to say about drinking and then once I started realizing that lots of those writers were drunks themselves mm-hmm. that sort of became a really fascinating subject so I knew when I was starting to write the book that I wanted to not go into vast detail about my my upbringing I didn't want to write a memoir but it wouldn't really have made sense as a mm-hmm. book as an investigation if I hadn't kind of laid down my cards and said, OK, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm personally interested in this subject, really strongly interested in this subject. So I tried to sort of, as minimally as possible, tell some of that story of, of what had been going on. And it was unbelievably hard. It was really... I ended up writing a lot of the book in New York because... It was actually... The whole thing about an alcoholic family is that there's this thing about denial that you you have to Mm -hmm. keep the secrets. You can't tell anyone what's happening. You can't really tell yourself what's happening. And trying to break that taboo, you know, 20 years later as an adult was really tough. So I'd be sitting in coffee shops in this village kind of forcing myself to type. And these, these really are quite minimal scenes, but they were frightening scenes and I was frightened as a child a lot. And that was hard. That was hard to do. But I think it really is important in the book mm-hmm. to just say, you know, I, I know what those rooms are like, I know what those places are like, I know what it's like to be around somebody who, who is that out of control. I've seen it. I think it always brings it back to that as well. We talked in the first part of the show about possibly an issue of over-romanticising the idea of, mm. of, the, of the writer who drinks. And what's so great about the book is you do constantly rein that in because you will you know relate some horrible tale from your own childhood yeah and I really wanted to um 
you know, to not glamorise, but at the same time, I didn't want to sort of make them out to be sleazy or be cruel or be unkind. So it was it was really important that it was writers who I really loved and to be able to sort of move back and forth between those mm. moments of kind of revealing darker stuff, but then remembering all the time, like, he wrote some of the best books we've ever had. So let's talk about the actual journey, the trip. So yeah. why did you decide to write it in, in that format? Why did you want to go and and visit the places? I think stuff happens in places. It stops things being abstract, actually going to the places where people lived. It also, touching on what I just said, of wanting to try and sort of remember what was best about them, they were people who all six of them who were incredibly responsive to landscape in their writing and in their lives and it seemed like a way of sort of remembering that, of capturing it, that kind of mm-hmm. better side of them as well as talking about what they were doing in bars or with a bottle of whiskey on the couch. And the other thing was that I really wanted to organise the book in terms of the sort of trajectory of alcoholism. So I wanted to look at intoxication and then at drinking really kind of getting out of control and mm-hmm. then these sort of these stories of the suicide, the worst of the drinking stories, and then recovery. And it seemed to me mm-hmm. that I could sort of plot that out across the American landscape and physically travel through it. And that might just make it more exciting, more pleasurable for the reader. There's times when you're, you're immersed in a place. So the obvious one is, is New Orleans, you know, when you're talking about Tennessee Williams and the fetid atmosphere of the place yeah. comes off the page, you know. I mean, it really, it really adds something to, to the descriptions to actually be there, definitely. Let's go on to the... Let's talk about the first... Well, actually, I want to talk about two of the first three writers because not that long ago I did a whole programme about Fitzgerald, so we can probably skip over yeah. Fitzgerald a little bit. But um, the first three writers that you talk about in the book are Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway and Tennessee Williams. And I might have sort of imagined this a little bit myself, put this emphasis on them, but I think these three, they're obviously the, the, the bigger names, the more famous, the more glamorous... And I think in some respects, of course, everywhere ends up shooting himself in the head one day. He's a tortured figure as well. Yeah. But they're also the three that they seem to be having... They've all got their problems, but I don't know. I'm trying to say they all seem to be having a better time of it than the writers will talk about in the third part, perhaps. That's interesting. I probably wouldn't have separated them out like that, but I can see what you're saying. They Certainly there was a period... You know, they they were like big time fun guys. Yeah, in that I, I they think... like to party. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's I think there's truth in that. But I think also Tennessee Williams in particular had such a incredibly unhappy time for the last Absolutely, twenty years of yeah. his life. But yeah, they're large figures. So let's talk about Hemingway. You've mentioned already his. I just want to talk about his background a little mm. because you've, you've already hinted at this in the first part. But there always almost seems some sort of destiny in in Hemingway's story yeah he's so interesting so he's kind of the kid from Oak Park Chicago and he had a very controlling mother and all of those um the Nick Adams stories his wonderful short stories are basically autobiographical they're very Mm -hmm. very close to his life so his father was a doctor and you see you see that character in the Nick Adams stories and his, um, I mean, the thing that always gets said is his mother dressed him as a girl for quite a long time. So perhaps there's something there about why he became so incredibly butch in that shit, but perhaps not. But anyway, he emerged from this childhood. He was kind of a, a sensitive guy, a, a sensitive guy in glasses. And at the same time, he was this sort of raving bully with this great desire to kill things. There's this amazing story about him... Um, not only catching sharks, but machine gunning sharks and machine gunning his own initials into the heads of dead sharks, which is like really <laughs> taking things to extremes. He always took things to extremes. Mm. He's that kind of character and sort of barreling from relationship to relationship, marriage to marriage, but with this incredible insecurity underneath mm-hmm. it all and this sort of desire to be loved and, and taking care of and... Just such a complicated man, such a such a difficult figure. So where does the drinking fit in? I think the drinking really gets underway when he's in Europe, and part of that is the escape from Prohibition America, where there's such sort of Puritanism, and he reaches Europe, he goes to Europe really quite young, and he lives in France and he lives in Spain, and there's this totally different culture, and he falls in love with it, this sort of good living Mm -hmm. and I think the thing with him is it just it gets out of control he's always talking about 
how to be a good drinker and that it's about sort of pleasure but moderation. But mm-hmm. he doesn't follow his own guidelines. He isn't capable of drinking mm-hmm. like that. So it just gets out of control. It's a greed, I think. And you can really see that in some of his stories and some of his novels, this mm-hmm. incredible greed for more and more and more brandy and more and more Chateau Margaux and uncontrollable. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oldfield and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Now this is what I want to get on to next, really, how it how it filters into his work, really. How does Hemingway's not just the drinking but the entire, you know, the thing, the writer, he's more than any of the others, I think, yeah. is is this model for not even just the drinking writer, but just the, the male big sort of alpha male writer figure yeah. that we can later see in, you know, people like Norman Mailer and, you know, are very obviously out of the same sort of mould of yeah. as Ernest Hemingway. So how does that come out in his work? I think there are different phases. So I think initially he uses alcohol, as, as Fitzgerald does, as this sort of great modernist slippery thing that mm-hmm. you can have these wonderful drunk scenes and it can be very sort of technically elegant and interesting. But I think later what you see in his work about drinking, and I mean, his work is saturated with alcohol. I can't remember if I tell this anecdote in the book or not, but at one point my dad and I were on holiday together and he was reading The Sun Also Rises and he decided to underline each time alcohol mm-hmm. was mentioned and you just look at the book now and it's like every page is covered in scribbles. So it's sort of there almost as a character in his work. But the thing that happens by the late stuff, so something like um, Across the River and Into the Trees, is that you can see that he's losing control, Mm -hmm. that he's losing control of his material, that he's losing that beautiful, clean Hemingway sentence. It's all over the place. It's bloated. It's not focused in the same way. It has become very similar to its author. Mm -hmm. And that's really sad. That's the thing that I think is really sad about Hemingway's drinking, never mind the fact that he's completely haunted by paranoia and Mm -hmm. in physical agony and et cetera, et cetera. And I think also you talk about a movable feast and, and I think to one extent mm. is, you know, his bitterness and the way he portrays other people and the way he portrays yeah. Scott Fitzgerald particularly yeah. is something that perhaps, but I don't know, again, it's speculation, but might he not have done if he wasn't a drunk? Do you know what I mean? To what extent does his own his own lifestyle 
dictate the way that he he describes his religion and the, the way he talks about other people. You mentioned before about you know he has this ongoing thing about Fisher would not be able to hold his drink and being he's yeah. a he's a proper drunk, whereas you know. Hemingway's a drinker, whereas Fitzgerald is is a lush. Yeah, and what's fascinating about A Movable Feast is it was the... I was so stunned by this, but it was the only time that Hemingway ever actually had to deal with how much he was drinking. He'd been to see a doctor in Spain. He'd discovered that he had alcoholic liver disease and he was put on a diet, so he couldn't drink at that point. And, you know, he's writing this book that's all very sort of cocky about his mm-hmm. drinking but actually he's also writing letters at the same time to Archie McNeese and various friends saying Archie McLeish, not McNeese, saying you know wine is the thing I've always loved I never mm-hmm. thought they could take it away from me and they have and I'm terrified and another three hours till I'm allowed my half glass you know so he kind of knew in some part of himself mm-hmm. that he was dependent and yet he's writing this sort of fiction of telling these nasty stories about Fitzgerald being a fool on a glass of wine and mm. him drinking seven bottles and being utterly fine, but he isn't fine, he knows he's not fine. And we've already we've already mentioned this, but where, <laughs> let's talk about where this where this all ends up, to what extent I wonder can the end of of Hemingway be put down to, to the drinking. No, oh, I think a lot of it I mean there's a theory now that part of what happens to Hemingway, part of the sort of crushing depression and paranoia that happens at the end of his life is to do with concussion. He had these mm-hmm. two or three really awful concussions. One of them, he was in an aircraft crash and he had to use his head as a battering ram to get the door open. So, you know, he really did sustain quite considerable damage to his head. And I mean, that's one of zillions of accidents. He was very, very accident prone. But I think there's really no doubt as well that some of it was alcoholic brain damage and some of it was just the depression that was the driver for the alcoholism in the first place this is what I mean about it being Mm -hmm. so complicated but I think very much alcoholism is a part of of why he ends up shooting himself Mm -hmm. and that's just so sad what happens to him seems to me to be really one of the sad stories of the book so let's move on to to Tennessee Williams and you've already again mentioned this you've already hinted at this but there's also this other layer to Tennessee Williams' story, which is not only the the writer, someone with absolute crushing social anxiety, someone with a drinking problem, mm. but someone who's already having to, someone who's also having to cope in that era of America with his sexuality as well. Mm. And what's amazing about him, and when we come to talk about John Cheever, it's it's really interesting to compare the two because John Cheever's sexuality was a source of torment to him. I've read. Tennessee Williams, almost everything by him, including his vast diaries, he never seems particularly tormented by his sexuality. He's tormented by so much Mm -hmm. else. But that seems to have been very sort of simple for him. That was what he desired. He was a very, very public figure. And all of these people, all of these film stars, all of these producers, the the whole sort of circle that he moved in, which is kind of socialites Mm -hmm. and really quite a glamorous circle totally accepted that he and his partner Frank Mello were lovers, that mm-hmm. they were together they socialised together, there wasn't this sort of secrecy that you'd see with somebody like Liberace there was just a total confidence about it mm-hmm. and I think that's why out of all of them Tennessee Williams has always been the one that I've kind of been most affectionate about because it seems like in all these other ways that he was sort of duplicitous or unpleasant, he maintained that kind of essential honesty that is so brave in that mm-hmm. era is so staggeringly brave the relationship that you you pay although the bitch... yeah that relationship has complexity well that's what i was going to say because it is i mean it sounds like an amazing story their relationship it lasts for you know, for decades and yeah you know and they're, they're dependent on each other but yeah it sours and it sours again we're, we're back to the drink it because, really absolutely sours because, because of the, the drink. drinking yeah because he becomes um I'm trying to think of a word that I can use on radio. He doesn't become a very nice man, let's say. Um, and Frank, who by all accounts was an incredibly nice man, sort of tolerates this for a long time. But there's something that really happens with alcoholics, which is that they just lose contact with reality. They become very irrational. And there are mm-hmm. lots of these sort of very irrational fights. And then Frank gets very ill. He has cancer and... In some ways, sort of Tennessee cares for him, but in other ways, he's very erratic. And mm-hmm. you know, it's this—it's this really heartbreaking story. And and then Frank dies, and that I think is the point for Tennessee Williams, where there's no going back. That he has now lost the person that he loves. What else is he going to do but just keep on and on drinking? Mm-hmm. So he called the '60s his stone age. And when you read his diaries, it's just. Um, 
I took a red pill, I took three green pills, I had a martini, I had a bottle of brandy, I had a bottle of rum. I mean, just <laughs> staggering <laughs> consumption. He's just gone. But the other thing that's extraordinary about him is that he's still writing plays every day. Mm. He's working. And this sort of work ethic perpetuates. So he, he's a very complicated man, I think. But he, he goes through, in terms of his work, I mean, the obvious person to compare him to here would have been Fitzgerald, who we've not really talked about. But he has, you know, amazing, incredible high success early on. Yeah. And then basically failure after failure after failure really ignominious mm. failure all the way to the end of his career really. mm. yeah it's interesting those late plays are really being revisited now they're a lot of them are starting to be staged again and critics are starting to look at them in different ways which is kind of great and kind of i'm i'm never sure the ones mm-hmm. that I, I haven't read them all because there are an awful lot of them but i've read a lot of them and they seem to me to bear the mark of of the kind of drinking that he was doing and to be quite sloppy and quite mm-hmm. incoherent and to sort of repeat things that had worked for him earlier on mm-hmm. and get more and more sort of violent and strange. But at the same time, even even taking out sort of two-thirds of his body of work, we're still left with this extraordinary... Mm-hmm. To my mind, he's the greatest American playwright that there's been. And when you kind of factor in the consumption, it seems like a miracle. This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Olivia Lang and we're talking about her book The Trip to Echo Spring on writers and drinking. It just occurred to me, Olivia, before we move on to the next three writers that uh, we've just finished off talking about Tennessee Williams but we have not actually mentioned where the book's title comes from. Perhaps we should Oh, yes, let's. (laughs) So um, The Trip to Echo Spring is in Catalan Hutton Roof. Brick, who's the the drunkard, the ex-football player, his wife, Maggie the Cat, is constantly saying, where are you going, Brick? What are you doing? And he'll say, I'm making a little short trip to Echo Spring, which partly means he's going to the liquor cabinet at Echo Spring in the mm-hmm. kind of bourbon, which I finally got hold of recently. <laughs> um, quite hard to buy. But he is also talking about something kind of symbolic, this this place where he gets, he calls it the click, the click in his head where things go quiet. So it seemed like the ideal title for mm-hmm. sort of trying to understand what the deeper registers of alcoholism were. What is this? What does it mean to be making that trip? What is that place? It also sounds like a supermarket bottle of New World Wine. Go <laughs> <laughs> get a bottle of Echo Spring from the convenience store. Yeah, for it totally does. <laughs> So the next three writers, John Berryman, John Cheever, Raymond Carver, I think they're well-known names, but they're not in the same magnitude as the, as the three people that we talked about in the second part. In some respects, they're, for a lot of their lives, toiling away in obscurity. Mm. And so I think battling with demons, battling with alcoholism and failure at the same Actually, time in some respects. It's never occurred to me, but... The first three are people who really found fame very, very mm-hmm. young. And these three, yeah, I'd never made that comparison. That's totally true. <laughs> huh. So let's... John Berryman, I think, I want to talk about most, really, because he's he's the one I was least familiar with. I think that's um, true of everyone. Yeah, yeah, I think. So why... Including me, actually. So why him? Well, I was... Um, the rest of people I've been familiar with for a very long time, they're sort of part of my canonical writers you know the writers mm-hmm. that I've really loved that I've grown up with but when I was first thinking about the book I was I was talking to um, a friend who's actually an academic here in Cambridge and he said oh you must include John Berryman and I sort of looked blank and went who no idea who that is and he sketched out a little bit of the Berryman story and I went away and I read the dream songs he, so John Berryman is a poet and his his main most famous piece of work is called the dream songs and they're this incredible collection of sort of confessional sonnets of a character that's sort of him and sort of isn't him called Henry and at some point during the sequence Henry kills himself and some of them are from the other side Mm -hmm. and 
they're extraordinary. They're really extraordinary. And I think as soon as I sort of encountered that voice, which is so much bound up with alcoholism, pain, suffering, all of these sort of themes, I realised that he had to be he had to be part of it. And so let's talk about what he was what he was doing because he was you know he was an academic. He wasn't mm. you know a big famous star. So let's talk about how the I guess how the writing and and the drinking would factor into the the just a normal actually quite suburban mundane life that he was living although that said i mean we don't know of him so well now but he really was the campus poet so in his in his heyday he won a pulitzer and he was on the cover of life magazine he was he was famous Mm -hmm. to ordinary people he was like robert lowell or somebody like that in an era where poetry was kind of glamorous, he he had that sort of rock star cachet. So, not initially at all. So initially, he's this very very nervous academic, very brilliant, writing really quite tight, tense poetry. And his friends, there's an amazing book by his first wife called Poets in Their Youth, and his friends were sort of Delmar Schwartz and Robert Lowell and this crew of people who all were totally tormented Mm -hmm. and drinking like crazy, drinking like fishes and sleeping with each other's wives and this this really sort of quite um, incestuous, quite painful society. And Berryman's actually interesting, although I said earlier that they tended not to drink to stimulate creativity, it seems like when he was really having his breakthrough poem, which is Homage to Mistress Radstreet, he was doing a lot of drinking either to sort of coax it along or to calm himself down because he was in such a state. I mean, he, he's the sort of person who would do a day's teaching, walk home in, in such a highly strung state that he'd go through the door of his house mm-hmm. and faint. He would just pass out. I mean, he really was overwrought. And apparently an incredible teacher, absolutely extraordinary, breathtaking mm-hmm. teacher. But also once he really once his alcoholism really got out of control, he would call up students drunk and threaten to kill them, he'd seduce students, he he behaved very badly as well. And he's kind of this fascinating figure, particularly because he was very interested in his own alcoholism. He wrote this unfinished novel called Recovery, which was about his mm-hmm. journeys through the recovery process. And it's it's very closely observed. It's very funny. He could often be absolutely hilarious as well, which you don't sort of expect mm-hmm. from that kind of super highbrow figure. And once I read Recovery, it was it was obvious that he had to be in there because he was reporting from fringes of experience that I mm-hmm. feel like almost nobody has. Maybe David Foster Wallace in a sort of different way, but he really had that capacity to sort of very beadly observe his own awfulness because mm-hmm. in lots of ways he's really... A pretty awful figure. Well, one of the reasons also he ends up not being finished, Recovery is an unfinished novel, of course, is because he ends up throwing himself off a bridge. Mm. Yeah, so that, I don't want to sound mocking, I don't feel mocking about him at all, but the sort of hubris of writing a novel about the recovery process is, is characteristic of the state that he was in at the end of his life, where he'd be talking about, you know, these ten books that he was writing and how they were all the greatest works. And perhaps they would have been the greatest mm-hmm. works. He was that talented. But his ambition and his superficial self-belief were totally undermined by this sense of absolute emptiness, absolute despair. His father killed himself when he was very young and he felt that very strongly. And the need in the recovery process to just take your guards down was something he found totally impossible. He just couldn't do it. And... Really, his his suicide, I think, is the low, the tragedy of the book. I guess it's it's really, it's a really painful story. So John Cheever, the next one, I want to take a brief look at. More famous, certainly more familiar to myself than John Berryman was, but not yeah. necessarily more famous to a wider audience. So give us a, a brief description of who Cheever was. Cheever Cheever is the archetypal New Yorker short story writer. I think, although he wrote five novels, he was known for his short stories. Mm -hmm. He's um, called the Chekhov of the suburbs sometimes, and I think that's a really fair comparison. He wrote these sort of beautiful, really quite surreal and strange, but also very much grounded in this kind of upper-middle-class America. They're always set around drinks parties, and everyone's had a bit too much to drink, and they're, they're both sort of superficially glamorous and quite disturbing there's lots of sort of people people deceiving each other people not being honest with each other and 
they're unbelievably beautiful, his writing. Of, of everybody in the book, he's the most beautiful writer, I think. He's capable of such sort of devastatingly lovely images. Mm-hmm. And he's a really interesting, he's kind of like his own stories. He's he's not what he appears. He appears like this sort of waspy, landed gentry type figure. Mm-hmm. He's got this beautiful big house and golden retrievers and he wears Brooks Brothers tweeds and he, you know, he looks the part. And that wasn't who he was at all. He came from a much poorer, more insecure background and he really created himself as as this figure that he wanted to be but wasn't and part of that and the, the sort of the Chiva tragedy is that really his desires were for men maybe not fully but that was part of what he wanted to be doing mm-hmm. and he tortured himself about that he absolutely tormented himself he was married he had children he wrote in his diary at one point every delivery boy every comely bank clerk is pointed at my life like a loaded gun and this is somebody who literally felt like a gun was pointing mm-hmm. at his head throughout his life, so it's hardly wonder. He drank so much, and obviously the more he drank, the more poisonous he was to his wife and children, the mm-hmm. more unhappy his family was, the lonelier he felt, the more alienated he felt, etc. Mm-hmm. You just see, and you know, another great diarist, so metres and metres of diaries mm-hmm. that just attest to this isolation and self-destruction of all the people in the book he's the one that, and it's not necessarily a, a great finish but he does he sort of comes out the other side he in does. some in some sort of way yeah he really does he really as they say he hits bottom but bad in um, he's teaching up in boston is it boston no it's not it's iowa and he really just basically is is on the path to a slow suicide through the bottle and his brother rescues him and pitches him into this um, treatment centre in New York, Smithers, which is also where Truman Capote went. And somehow, magically, it does the trick. He manages to mm-hmm. get sober. He writes his best novel, Faulkner, as after he gets out, which is which is also about recovery. And the thing with Chief that's incredible is he really he sticks it out. He died of cancer. He got cancer not long after, within ten years, and his doctors would say to him John you can drink now I mean mm-hmm. you know you're, you're going to die and he'd say well you know I, I think I won't I think I'd rather go out sober and that is so moving to me after the sort of pig's ear he'd been mm-hmm. making of his life I'm Andrew McConnell-Stott, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. There's a scene with Cheva and, and the next person we're going to talk mm. about, Raymond Carver, when they're at, both teaching at Iowa, carousing and, and drunk. And Carver, I think, and I'm sure this is unfair, but of all of the six people in the book, was the one that stuck out to me as being, a lot of these people, their, their bad behaviour was you know, can be blamed on the alcoholism. Carver, to me, of all of the people, seemed to be the one that was the most of an arsehole, but who could often blame it on the fact that he was drinking as well. It seemed like yeah. the, the drinking came out of the fact that he just seemed like a nasty piece of work anyway. Yeah, yeah, interesting, because the things, I mean, like most people in my generation, you know, I really idolised Carver because of those short, those mm-hmm. stories and because people always tell you, like, the post-drinking Carver was such a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And reading his wife his first wife's memoir was a real eye-opener because the things he did were so far beyond the sort of slipperiness that he would talk about that mm. at one point he um thinks she's looking at another man when they're in the car and so he stops the car and he beats her head against the sidewalk and she loses something like 30 percent of her blood i mean it's just this horrific scene you're like you say he's he's not a nice guy and who knows what the sort of second generation the 2.1 carver is but he he seems to have pulled together something but you know in a way i wanted to sort of end the book with this like and he's a hero and it's all fine and actually it was much more complicated than that sort of reading about his recovery and Mm -hmm. reading particularly about how he felt about his children i ended up feeling like it's a real complicated business recovery Mm -hmm. you stop drinking you you recover some things but you don't necessarily completely change personality 
And I think that's probably a better ending, really, for the book than the kind of miracle story, mm-hmm. because there's only, more so realistic. Much, yeah, <laughs> there's only so much that it can do. I've got just a couple more questions. First of all, why are these six? Mm. Or perhaps not even why are these six, but who else... Who came after these people? So this archetype that they're setting down, this idea of, of the writer who drinks, there are there are lots of people that have been influenced by these six writers yeah. who perhaps you could have chosen over these ones. So who, who came after? I guess there's a sort of... I mean, people did come after, but I think it starts to change to drugs then, doesn't it? Like mm. the story of the 70s and 80s, when you're looking at the beats, say that immediately starts becoming much more of a druggy story. So mm-hmm. somebody like William Burroughs, who I'm fascinated by, it would be a story about heroin. And then I think what we see in our own age is, is just the whole culture of addiction has changed so dramatically. I don't think the story would be about alcohol at all. I think it would be about pharmaceutical drugs, if mm-hmm. anything. It would be about that kind of medication. So you, again, you'd see people like David Foster Wallace coming mm-hmm. in there, and he, he did drink, but... We'd have Prozac in the mix, which just, you know, all of these people would have been on Prozac if mm-hmm. they'd appeared 50 years later. So I think it's sort of the underlying things, the underlying anxiety, the underlying depression stay constant. But the way that it's medicated and the things that people are drawn to taking just change with time as well. But they also laid down that, the template, I'm also thinking, of not just the drinking, yeah. but, well, the behaviour, but also just the ridiculous machoism of, of so much... Yeah. The sort of sixties and seventies, a male writer archetype. So I mean, you mentioned Bukowski and Roth and and yeah, yeah and, and um, John Updike. This sort of big know. swinging dicks type mm-hmm. stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. But then, does that continue to the present day? Like, is that still a? And I guess maybe you see it with people like Martin Amos as mm-hmm. well. You know, there's that sort of. Um, I've gone completely blank on what his friend was called, but again, the. The one who died recently. Hitchens, Christopher yes, Hitchens. Yes, Christopher Hitchens. So, He's been on this show. Oh, really? Well, yeah, so you see the same sort of mm-hmm. relationship with alcohol, I think, yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, certainly with that. Oh, I'll cut this out because I, I love Christopher Hitchens, but this whole terrible thing that he talks about in his autobiography where all of the boys, you know, Ian and Martin, they would go and get drunk in Soho and do terrible, terrible word games together. And he talks and about it, it in his book as if it's great, as yeah. if that was such fun, the best fun you could have. And you read it thinking, oh God, this is awful. <laughs> and surely comes from just these people. Yeah. It's surely yeah. sort of, to be a writer, you have to live this sort of lifestyle. That's a good point there, because the last question I want to ask is, I loved the book, I thought it was wonderful, mm-hmm. it's beautifully written, and the six great lives... But, you know, they are sordid, <laughs> bad people. And after I put the book down, I lay there and I tried to think of, I want to write a book which is about six nice, well-adjusted, good citizen writers. Huh. I, don't, I don't think it's possible. Who, who would be in that book? Well, yeah, no, that's difficult. I mean, <laughs> maybe you need some women writers in there. I think that Margaret Atwood is probably mm-hmm. a good citizen, isn't she? Mm-hmm. Alice Munro is a good citizen. Mm-hmm. But what what would be the content of the book? What would they well, do? Well, indeed, exactly. <laughs> that was the point. You know, what of the story? You know, exist, there isn't a story but... that exists behind the idea of, oh, yes, they, they went and spoke at a feminist conference. They did some <laughs> charity work. It's not the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And also, I think, you know, with this sort of bit, you're trying to look at something about human experience, mm-hmm. aren't you? And I don't want to glamorise drinking in any way, but at the same time, these are people who are really articulating large questions about how we live if we're damaged by our childhoods or how we live if we've got mental health problems. And they're sort of showing various paths, and I think these are paths that we shouldn't take, but nonetheless, I'm sort of, there they are, they exist to be looked at, and it seems it seems sort of fascinating but also like you say you're really depressive like what a waste of a life and that's the thing that Carver says as he comes out of it is you know I've got a second life and who would have thought it because I poisoned the first Mm -hmm. although of course you know he doesn't have much of a second life no he doesn't get long but he gets 10 years and you know he really he really made the most of those 10 years there is a, a, a lovely scene in the in the end of the book with the um the the, the graves. I think Carver and his um his... and that was yeah that was amazing. So at Carver's grave, which is a very beautiful place, and it's on a sort of cliff edge with the Pacific Ocean, and there's a bench, and under the bench there's a little box, and in the box there's a Ziploc bag, and you open it, and there's a notebook, and 
people who love Carver's work, but also his grandkids and his widow, go and write in this book and... It was terribly moving because these would be people who were saying, hey, Ray, you know, like they were talking to a friend. I, I'm i a drunk too and your stories give me hope. And, you know, what more do you want from literature, really? I think that's a poignant point for us to, uh, to finish. So I'll be talking to Olivia Lang. We'll be talking about her book, The Trip to Echo Spring, on writers and drinking, which is out now in paperback from Canongate. So, Olivia, thank you so much for taking thank the time you. to talk to me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, or even not, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.